Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to avail themselves of First uh, John 1, 9, if necessary, to make sure you're in fellowship so that uh, this is a profitable time spiritually as we're in fellowship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight to focus upon your word. We know that in a world that is constantly changing, where a future seems less certain and where stability is often fleeting, we know that the only place where we have certainty, stability, and confidence is your word. Because you are the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, we know that we can always count upon you and we can put our confidence and our faith and our trust in you, knowing that whatever we encounter in life as we walk with you and trust you, that we know that we can have a relaxed mental attitude and real happiness in life because you have solved the greatest problem we face and you can solve every other problem that we face. And so, Father, as we study your word tonight, help us to understand what we study. May we have a better understanding of our salvation and how we are justified that we may have a better uh, understanding of how to communicate this to those who need to hear the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 3. The last couple of lessons, we've gone through Romans 21, 321 and 322, but now the righteousness of God, that is God's own righteousness. I've uh, belabored this point in terms of understanding the Genitive construction in the Greek, getting into a little, a little grammar. Is this righteousness from God or is this, uh, God's own righteousness? And I believe it is God's own righteousness that is given to us. The right, and this speaks of His own righteousness, His essence, that apart from the law, it is revealed. That which is His character now is revealed or disclosed, being witnessed or having been witnessed by the Prophet by the law and the prophets, and that indicates that this is a um, revealed through the word. Law and the prophets relates to to scripture, the Old Testament scripture. Verse twenty two, even the righteousness of God, same righteousness. Now it has to be His essence. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Uh, to all, um, to all who believe, for 
uh, for there is no difference. Now, the phrase there that you see in the uh, English, to all and on all who believe, this is a textual uh, variant that's not, the on all is not, uh, or to, it's simply to all who believe in the, uh, in the Greek. The other phrase is a, uh, probably not in the original. For there is no difference. Now, we talked about this last time. How do we get the righteousness of God? We get it through imputation. And this is so important to understand that we as, as human beings, fallen, have no righteousness on our own. Even the best that we can do is not, does not measure up to the high standard of God's perfect righteousness. So Isaiah says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I keep emphasizing this. He doesn't say unrighteous deeds, but righteous deeds. The best that we have to do are just garbage in God's sight. So we can't do anything to make ourselves righteous. And then we have um, the righteousness of Christ on the cross. Our sins are imputed to him credited to him, and I pointed out last time that this is what is called a, a judicial imputation because there's no natural affinity between our unrighteousness and his perfect righteousness. So it's a judicial assignment of our sin to a Christ as a substitute. And in the same way, his righteousness then is going to be credited to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that we are declared righteous. That's what it means, and it's so important to recognize this, this issue that it is a declaration of righteousness. We're not made righteous. You see those The little cliche, true that it is, but it's cliche because it shows up on a bumper sticker that uh, I'm a Christian, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And there are so many people who do get the idea that if you're a Christian, then that means that somehow you are just morally better than everybody else. And indeed, within Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, this is their view. It's an, what they also call infused righteousness. That it's not a declaration of righteousness. It is that God actually transforms the individual Christian so that he's not uh, unrighteous anymore. He's made. He becomes righteous so that he is morally changed. And this is not what the scriptures teach. That's not the Protestant doctrine of justification. Uh, by faith alone. It is, the emphasis is on a forensic justification that Christ's righteousness is judicially assigned to us in the same way that our unrighteousness was assigned to him so that just as he did not actually become a sinner on the cross, but he bore the penalty for us, so we do not actually become righteous but his righteousness is assigned to us so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ that covers us and declares us to be, uh, to be righteous. And last time I pointed to the imagery that we have back in the Old Testament in Zechariah, and I believe that was in uh, 
Zechariah um, 3, that it's so important to understand uh, the, the vision of the high priest there when uh, Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua the high priest. This is after the return. This isn't Joshua the general, but Joshua the high priest after the return from the Babylonian captivity. Standing before the angel of the Lord, that's got to be the pre-incarnate Christ because all the way through the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is viewed as full deity and is clearly seen as a different personage and person than the, than the Father. He's worshipped. Gideon worships the angel of the Lord, uh, offers sacrifices to the angel of the Lord, calls the angel of the Lord Yahweh, but the angel of the Lord is... Uh, seen as fully divine but distinct from from Yahweh. This is also seen, as a matter of fact, in uh, the first chapter of Zechariah where you have a con- conversation in verse Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, where the angel of the Lord answers and speaks to the Lord of hosts. So there's a conversation between the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, which is, the term Sabaoth, which you often sing when you sing uh, uh, Mighty Fortresses Are God, that's the Hebrew plural word for armies. Host is just an antiquated uh, English word. And so in uh, Zechariah 1.12, the angel of Yahweh answers and says, O Yahweh Sabaoth, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? So there, and, the, and then it says, and the Lord answered him. So you see in Zechariah 1.12 that there's this conversation between two divine personages. Now, we understand that from the lens of the New Testament, that that's the Father and the Son. That is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that um, in Zechariah 3, in those first few verses, when you have that imagery of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. It is the angel of Yahweh who is uh, being challenged by Satan as to how uh, they can ex- God can accept Joshua the high priest because his garments are unclean. This is a picture of the fact that he uh, as a sinner. And so his filthy garments are removed and clean garments are put on him. And this is a great picture, a great visual image of what imputation is and the declaration of of justification. So try to think in these terms. When we think through these basic doctrines, they're all prefigured in the Old Testament. They're all taught in the Old Testament. We'll see that again tonight as we look at redemption and propitiation. And try to match up just one event in the Old Testament. So when you think of imputation and justification, you ought to think of Zechariah 3 and the clothing of the high priest and you ought to think of Abraham in Genesis 15:6. And then when we think about redemption, we're going to see tonight that redemption is tied to the Exodus event and propitiation is tied to the Ark of the Covenant. And if you just keep these images or historical events in your mind, then it helps to understand what these abstract things are. It's great to see how how when in the process of revelation, God started off in the Old Testament, giving pictures and, and taking historical events and assigning certain significant, significance to it as also a symbol 
of of what he does so that when we get into the new testament we're trying to understand more abstract doctrines then we already have these pictures there that help us to understand uh, what is going on so there's a declaration of righteousness and that is what we mean by justification so the blessing of god then flows to us not because of what we do but because of the righteousness of christ which we possess so Verse 22 states, even the righteousness of God through faith, it becomes ours through faith in Christ to all who believe, for there's no difference. Then verse 23 is really a parenthesis, that verse that we've all learned, hopefully, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is often a a term for the entire essence of God, all that God is. So the statement, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is really a parenthesis within the main, uh, the main line of thought. The main line of thought is even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe being justified. Skip down to verse 24. And that's really a causal participle there. It's a present participle, and it should be understood with a causal sense Uh, to all who believe because they are justified freely by his grace. So justification is the free gift, justified by his grace. Uh, Not not freely, it's not an adverb there at all. It is the word for gift, Dorian, because they are justified as a free gift by his grace through redemption. So what comes first? This is where we ended last time. I said, what comes first? If you have a statement saying that you are justified through redemption, what comes first, justification or redemption? Redemption comes first. Redemption establishes the foundation upon which justification can take place. And so tonight what I want to do is go back into the Old Testament some and look at what it means to be redeemed. What's the, what's the idea of redemption? Now, here's where I'm going to go with this. Just try to, try to remember this. There's three things that have to happen in order for any person to be able to get into heaven. The first thing that has to happen is the sin penalty has to be paid. In Genesis chapter 2, God said that if Adam eats, ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would immediately die. So he would certainly die. That was a legal penalty, separation from God, that the whole human race is under condemnation because of that. So there's a legal penalty problem. The second thing is that as a result of that legal penalty being enacted upon Adam, all of Adam's descendants are born spiritually dead. They are that's the consequence of that penalty. It's, but that is a personal reality as opposed to a general legal reality. Every person that comes into this earth, except for Jesus because of the virgin birth, is without, is, is, is under condemnation and has a sin nature and is spiritually dead. So that's the second problem. A spiritually dead person can't get into heaven. The third problem is that they're unrighteous. Now, we've already seen this, the, how the unrighteousness problem is solved. That's by faith. But the spiritual death problem is also solved by faith because when we trust in Christ, then God the Holy Spirit makes us alive again 
and that is called regeneration. We are born again. But only those who believe in Jesus are born again, and only those who believe in Jesus are justified. But that first problem, the legal problem, is something that is solved for everybody. The sin penalty is paid for everybody. Everyone is redeemed. And everyone, God is propitiated for everyone. And those are really sort of two sides of the same coin. One is manward. Redemption pays the price for man. And because that price is paid for man, God's righteousness and justice are then satisfied. So redemption is sort of a manward event that occurs for all. And propitiation is a Godward event that relates to every human being. But that just pays the legal penalty. The penalty's paid, but what's the problem? You're still spiritually dead. You still lack righteousness. That, those pro, if those, problem, those two problems aren't repaired, then you're still under condemnation. You still go to the lake of fire, but not for your sin because that's paid for, because you have rejected God's solution. That's the thrust of John 3.18 that um, if you believe on him, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already because you have not believed, not because you have sinned, because the sin's paid for, because you have not believed in the only begotten, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So now these are the two words that you find in the Old Testament related to the concept of redemption, the concept of redemption. Each one has a little different nuance. The first one is uh, Gaal, and Gaal is, shows up throughout most of the Old Testament, and it emphasizes the fact that uh, God uh, redeems through a kinsman redeemer. This is depicted in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, where Ruth has been widowed, her husband's died, her father-in-law's died, she's left with just her mother-in-law, she's not Jewish, she's a Moabitess, but she is a believer, and so she aligns herself with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she goes uh, to live in the land with Naomi, and God is going to provide for her through Boaz, who is her Goel. He is her kinsman redeemer, and it depicts the fact that to be redeemed, we have to be redeemed by someone who is like us. An angel can't redeem us. Uh, uh, God can't redeem us as pure deity, but a human being has to redeem us. Uh, the word pada has a uh, the meaning of to purchase or to ransom. Now, the one thing that ought to come into your mind every time you hear the word redemption is the payment of a price. That's the fundamental idea. Redemption means to pay a price. Imputation is to credit somebody with righteousness. Justification is to declare someone righteous. Redemption is to pay the price, the sin penalty, pay the price, and then we'll see that propitiation is to satisfy the justice of God. So just keep those, uh, connect those words together. Now, pada has the idea of paying a ransom or paying a price to set someone free from a state such as slavery or under the pen some legal penalty, so with the uh, end result being that they are set free. Now, in this next slide... Don't get, don't try to write all of this down. I'm sort of throwing, a, it's like a shotgun approach. 
I'm going to throw all this out so that you get you 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 feel the sense of the weight of this as opposed to being able, remembering every word. There are about seven words that are used for redemption in the New Testament, and they each have a little different emphasis. Now, the first six here, if you look at them, they all are built off of a root syllable in the the Greek word L-U, which means its core semantic meaning is to release something. It's used of divorce in 1 Corinthians. It's used of... uh, uh, many different things, but in the form of these words, based off of uh, the noun lutron, so you can add prefixes such as antilutron, apolutrosis. Uh, these ch- slightly change the emphasis of the word. The verb is lutrao. Uh, each of these has a different different sense to it, but the main idea is deliverance from the paint by the payment of a price. If you look at D. That shows the verb, lutrao, means to pay a ransom price, to liberate somebody from from slavery or imprisonment, uh, to rescue them from uh, imprisonment, but it always has that main idea of the paying a price. The noun uh, lutrosis refers to redemption. The noun lutrates refers to the individual who does the redeeming, the redeemer. He is the one who pays for redemption. Uh, the first word at the top, antilutron, anti is a uh, preposition in Greek for substitution, emphasizes the substitutionary sense of the payment. So the emphasis in all these words has to do with paying a price uh, for on behalf of someone else in order to set them free. Then there's a second word group from uh, the root Agorazo, the verb agorazo, or agora, the agora in Greek was the marketplace. And so, again, it has this idea of a purchase, to buy something in the marketplace and to purchase it. The verb agorazo simply means to purchase something. Ex agorazo means to purchase something out of the marketplace and was used for uh, purchasing or li- the freedom of a slave or liberating a slave. So the main idea of redemption has that idea of paying a price to remove a a penalty. And so that relates to removing the sin penalty from the human race. Now, it's used in a number of important passages. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Job 33:28. Uh, he, referring to God, will redeem, pada, emphasizing the payment of a price, will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, that is Sheol, and his life shall see the light. So instead of uh, of death, there's life because of redemption. Psalm 44.26 speaks to God in prayer, Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Again, emphasizing that redemption is based on mercy. It's not based on works in the Old Testament. It's based on God's, ultimately on God's mercy. Now, one of the first places that we find an emphasis on redemption in the Old Testament is in Exodus. So the picture of redemption, and I reference this all the time when we have the Lord's table, the picture of redemption is grounded in the Exodus event when the uh, Israelites are redeemed 
are freed from slavery. So that becomes the picture in the New Testament of how God liberates us, redeems us from the slavery to sin. In Exodus 6, 6, we read, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, uh, God is speaking to Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you. There, and there we have the word ga'al, indicating it's going to be accomplished through a kinsman redeemer. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then we have in Exodus fifteen thirteen. And after the Exodus event, the plagues and the uh, deliverance through the Red Sea, in thy loving kindness thou hast led the, thy people whom thou hast redeemed. In thy strength thou hast guided them to the holy habitation. Now, what is the basis on this in this verse for their redemption? Is it because they were such good, wonderful people? No. Is it because they obeyed the law? No, because the law hadn't been given yet. What's the basis for their redemption? Their redemption is based on the loving kindness of God, his chesed, his free grace, his faithful, loyal love to his covenant. So it is on the basis of his loving kindness that he led the Israelites out of Egypt. He redeemed them. He redeemed them based on verse 6, Exodus 6, 6, um, through the uh, through his outstretched arm, and that always refers to his omnipotence, his power, and with great judgment. So there's the redemption is accomplished through the judgments that God brings upon the Israelites, which culminates in the last judgment, which is the Passover, Pesach, and at Passover, the picture there is of the Lamb who dies who is the redemption price for the firstborn so that when the lamb is sacrificed, the blood is applied to the door face, then the the, uh, Lord passed over the house and the firstborn did not die. So you have these first two verses, Exodus 6, 6 and Exodus 15, 13, speaking of redemption. It's used a lot in, in, um, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7, 8. Uh, Moses says, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Notice it's not because you're such a wonderful people. It's not because you've obeyed the Torah. It's not because you've done righteousness. That's not the reason God redeemed them. He redeemed them, first of all, because he loved them. Second, because of the oath he swore to their forefathers. It's based on God's character, not on what man does. Never, ever in Scripture is man redeemed on the basis of human human works or human effort. Again, in nine, um, and as we read through that, I, um, he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy nine twenty six. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people. Even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed through thy greatness. God is the one who redeems them. We don't redeem ourselves. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 5 also speaks of the God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 15, 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. 
and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. So again and again, God is the one who redeems. This becomes one of his major characteristics, one of the major identifiers of God in the Old Testament is redemption. Uh, Deuteronomy 21.8, Thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.18 is another one. Uh, let's skip over to Isaiah. Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41.14, Yahweh is described here. Most of those words, the, most of the uh, words related to redemption in, um, uh, I didn't get that change, the Hebrew change there, so it came across weird because I had done this with another font. Um, Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So this is the title. We have it, there I have the Hebrew correct in this slide. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So this title, this is one of the major titles for Yahweh in the Old Testament, especially in uh, Isaiah. He is the Goel, which emphasizes this, that he's got to be a kinsman. So there is an implicit or implied prophecy here that the one who comes to redeem must be a human being. And, of course, you have passages like the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, that he would be born of a virgin, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 9, uh, these passages all indicate that, that Isaiah 9, 6, all indicate that, that the Redeemer would come as a human being. Again, um, Isaiah forty-eight seventeen. thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, your Goel, the Holy One of Israel. And then Jeremiah 31, 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. It is always God who performs the work of redemption from his grace, from his hesed, from his uh, loving kindness, that is, from his mercy. So that's, that is redemption. The New Testament has the same idea. It describes salvation from the viewpoint of the penalty of sin, that it, the legal penalty that is paid for by Christ on the cross. And so redemption looks at the human race as being shackled by sin, shackled in as a slave to sin, uh, under the penalty of sin, and then it is Jesus who pays that redemption price. Now, that's the payment of the price. So as I pointed out before, when you think of the, the way this passage is structured, in Romans uh, 3.24, uh, we're, ju- we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. So the redemption price is paid, and it's on that basis that God then can justify us. So redemption is for all. Justification is for those who believe. Romans 3.25 develops this further. Because we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, the whom refers to Christ Jesus, whom God set forth, Jesus Christ is set forth, as it were, put on display by God as a propitiation by means of his blood. Now, just a couple of things to remind you of in terms of, of how we understand this verse when we read passages that talk about 
the blood of Christ. It's not that his physical blood is that which pays the penalty, but the term blood of Christ is, is a figure of speech to describe death, just as in the Noahic covenant. The shedding of blood is a term, an idiom for causing death, and it indicates a violent death. In the Noahic covenant, it's a mur- it's murder. So here we have in Romans 3.25, that is, Jesus set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, propitiation, actually most of these words I've been using, imputation, justification, redemption, and propitiation, are not found in a lot of the newer, uh, more modern translations. Now, some of these words are found in New American Standard or because New American Standard, I think, is aimed at about the ninth or 10th grade level for reading. The King James, they say, is like 12th grade. I don't know too many 12th graders that can understand the King James Version. I don't know any too many others that can understand it. Um, New American Standard is modernized. New King James is modernized, but these are usually seen to be more advanced, a little more technical, a little, I mean, a little more difficult to understand because of the vocabulary. And so you have a popularity of a lot of tr- not only translations, but also uh, paraphrases. Now, a paraphrase, the difference between a paraphrase and a translation is with the translate, uh, in a translation, the translator is sitting down with the original Greek or Hebrew in front of him, and he is translating it from the Greek or Hebrew into English. In a paraphrase, you have somebody, for a, a very popular paraphrase is the Living Bible. And I remember uh, going to camp back when I was a, ki- uh, a little kid and uh, being encouraged to buy. The first one that came out was the Living Letters. It was the Epistles of Paul. And that's great if you just want to read. It's not good for study, but if you're trying to just read to get the gist of what's being said, a paraphrase is good because it gets it down into a little more everyday language, and it takes uh, Ken Taylor, who was a Dallas Seminary graduate who did the uh, Living Bible, uh, started this because he was reading to his children when they were little, and they didn't have a, you couldn't understand the King James, so he would write out the, what he was going to read to them at night and put it into words that they could understand. So he's not working from the original languages. He's working just paraphrasing a translation and putting it into a little more usable uh, vocabulary for a younger audience. I remember when I was in college, um, I think I was a senior in college, and I realized I really didn't know the the Old Testament that well. And you sit down and, and still, I, I didn't have a New American Standard Bible until probably after I graduated from college. I still had a King James. And I would try to read through uh, the Pentateuch, and you just got lost. I mean, you just couldn't even, it was hard to just read it just to get a gist of who's who and what's what and where's where and how to understand it. So I went down to a little uh, Bible uh, bookstore and gift shop that was around the corner from the, uh, uh, from the campus, and they and I was just looking at books, Christian books, and they had this little thing called a digest of the Old Testament. It was sort of a Reader's Digest version of the Old Testament that was taken from the Living Bible, but it, and it was abridged and condensed. But I could, and it was still large. I mean, it had most everything in it, and it put everything in chronological order, so that you weren't reading reading things that were. Uh, out of, out of order, and I remember I it took me a couple of months, and I read through the whole thing, 
And it was the first time I really had a grasp of what was going on in the Old Testament. I wasn't reading it to study. I was reading it just to get an understanding of the flow of history and people and events so that I could have a better grasp of the, of the Old Testament. And so um, that's very helpful. But we're, we're, we've lost a generation today who can't think theologically for a lot of different reasons, one of which is they've got a dumbed-down Bible with dumbed-down vocabulary. And these words like redemption and propitiation, and I mean, this isn't something new. I remember sitting in, in theology, whatever it was, 101, 301, I think that's what it was, theology 301, first semester, theology proper in the spiritual life in Dallas Seminary, and there was a guy sitting next to me that was, uh, I thought he was an old man at the time, he was probably about 43 or 44, and he was a retired uh, naval commander, and he had just gotten out of the Navy, and come to seminary, and he was looking at words like omniscient and omnipotent and immutability, and his brain was turning inside out because he had not been taught well in any church, uh, which happens with a lot of guys in the military because they're moving around so much, and so he just wasn't exposed to any kind of biblical, uh, technical biblical or theological language, and so he was just as as lost as he could be and was having so much trouble uh, getting through uh, his theology lessons. So um, this is a problem today. We've taken these words out. We put in uh, a little bit more user-friendly. That's the popular uh, expression, user-friendly words. But then later on, people don't move from childhood to adulthood in terms of their reading, and so they never learn uh, learn these words. And it's very important to have a vocabulary so that you can think clearly and precisely in any field of endeavor. And so often today that's that's uh, sort of looked down on, especially when it involves the Bible. And yet most people, if they go to the doctor and the doctor tells them about the kind of cancer that they have and what the treatment's going to be and they've never heard any of those words before, they write them all down, they go home and they look everything up on the Internet and they don't have a problem learning that vocabulary when it really matters to them. But the Bible doesn't matter to them, so... We're not going to learn those big words. We'll go to, down the street to some other church. So God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. That means by his death. And propitiation is a word that basically means satisfaction. The justice of God has to be satisfied. So we paraphrase this as God set forth uh, Jesus as a satisfaction by his death. It's his death that satisfies the justice of God. And then he says through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So, so the fact that Jesus goes to the cross to die demonstrates that God is righteous. God can't just say, well, you sinned. You made a mistake. Now, now, you can do better tomorrow. We're not going to have any serious penalty. There is a serious penalty involved, and, and it has to be dealt with. And God cannot compromise his own integrity by reducing the payment the legal penalty for sin, unless it is paid. So that's the purpose of propitiation. It's directed towards the justice and the righteousness of God. Now, the words that are involved, the first word is the word kaporth, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and that relates to the mercy seat that is on the box that was the Ark of the Covenant. The basic Hebrew word for, kafar, for, for atonement was kafar. 
And this is where we get the term Yom Kippur. And day after tomorrow, starting tomorrow night at sundown on the Jewish calendar, uh, all of your Jewish friends will be going to synagogue for tomorrow night's uh, um, Kol Nidre, and then that's the evening service before Yom Kippur on Saturday. And then they will be going in. And and in in Judaism, Yom Yom Kippur, this period of time between uh, the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur called the Days of Awe or the High Holy Days, and it is a time now for reflection upon your sins, seeking God's uh, forgiveness on the basis of whatever uh, your good deeds are, hoping that you've performed enough good deeds so that your name will be inscribed in the Book of Life. And so Saturday, Yom Kippur, is a heavy, heavy, day in Judaism. It is a day of soul-searching and trying to make penance to God for one's sins in preparation for the coming new year so that you will begin the year with your name uh, inscribed in the book of life. Now, that's not how the Day of Atonement began in Exodus. That's how it was transformed under the influence of Pharisaic theology Uh, coming out of the first century after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And so what we're focusing on is the original meaning assigned to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, K-P-R, that's the three consonants. That's what's at the root of Kaporath. You have an ending, E-T-H, but the root is K-P-R for atonement. Um, And so... The Kaporeth refers to the mercy seat. It is the place where atonement took place, the ritual atonement took place annually for the nation where they are cleansed. Now, there's there's um, been a lot of, of interesting work done on the meaning of this word over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. In a lot of our Bibles, uh, the word group kafar is usually translated uh, with the word atonement, the English word, which was a uh, an English word that was sort of made up or coined to explain this word. You don't find atonement anywhere in the New Testament. And, and it's the English word at one month. It really sounds more like reconciliation. But what's interesting is the word that shows up more in the Septuagint as a translation of kafar is katharizo, which means cleansing. And it has to do with the cleansing of sin so that at the end of the year, there's a sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement by the high priest and the nation is cleansed of its sins, the unintentional sins. The intentional sins are left in the hands of the grace of God. But the unintentional sins are cleansed, and it takes place when the high priest brings the uh, blood of the uh, Passover, I mean, excuse me, of the, uh, of the lamb from the atonement, brings that, that um, blood in and places it upon the mercy seat. So God's instructions are given in Exodus 25:17, and the word for mercy seat here is that first word, the Hebrew word, kaporth. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Now, it's interesting that what's, that the box for the Ark of the Covenant is made out of a combination of 
Acacia wood, which is a very hard, dense wood. When you're in Israel, you can see a lot of acacia trees, and I understand in California or the West, there are a lot of places that have acacia trees. It's a very hard, dense wood that's not prone to uh, to, to rot or to uh, any kind of corruption. So it's a tr- great picture, we believe, of the humanity of Jesus Christ that was sinless. And then it is covered with pure gold, a picture of his deity, so that you have a combination of the gold and the wood, which depicts the hypostatic union, the deity, undiminished deity, and true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the mercy seat itself is pure gold. It's two and a half uh, cubits long, which is about 30, about, um, it's about 45 uh, inches or so. It's a cubit was about 18 inches, so that'd be 45 inches um, long and one and a half cubits wide, which would be about 27 inches wide. And on top, God says, you shall make two cherubim. I am is the Hebrew plural, so it's two cherubs of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, make one end of uh, one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece uh, with the mercy seat at its at its two ends. And then in verse uh, verse 20, the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, facing one another, and the faces of the cherubs are to be turned toward the mercy seat. That's really important because something's going to happen on that mercy seat once a year. And that's where the cleansing, the atonement takes, takes place for the nation. And in the process of the atonement, now, I've got a d- new DVD on the tabernacle that I've been trying to watch, and I haven't been able to play it on my Mac or on the PC side, so I'm still working with that. But I picked up some, some, uh, a couple of interesting new books on the temple that were written by a couple of rabbis and have come out in, in just the last two years, and they're fascinating. And the color artwork, full-color artwork that's in these books is unbelievable. And one of the things that's interesting, they have a lot of rationale. And I, like I said, I just got these within the last couple of weeks, and I haven't had time to, to look at them and to, and to really study the, the rationale but they, they have detailed pictures of the, the joints and everything, how every little detail was made. But one of the interesting things is, if you remember from our study in Hebrews, that there's some discussion as to whether or not the altar of incense was just outside the veil separating the uh, outer holy place from the inner holy of holies, and that there are some, based on pre- the prepositions used in Hebrews, that it was just inside uh, the veil where the high priest could still part the veil a little bit and deal with the incense there without going inside the holy, the holy place. But in both of these books, who are written by Jewish writers, different from anything else I've ever seen any, anywhere else, they stick the altar of incense at the entryway to the holy place. So the very first thing you encounter as a priest would walk into the holy place is the altar of incense. And then there would be the table of showbread and the, and the uh, menorah. I don't know why they did that. That would be interesting to It's one of the things I want to find out about is why do they move it. But um, one, one uh, never knows why these things have uh, what the technical reasons are there. And maybe it's because 
It's based on a rabbinic tradition that developed that is post-biblical, which, because both books are based on not only what the scripture says, but what the later rabbis taught. So maybe that's where that, that came from. So in verse 22, God says, there I will meet with you. That's speaking in relation to the high priest and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So here is a picture of the mercy seat and the two cherubs overlooking it. Now, what's the problem with this artist's depiction here? Anybody notice it? They're not one piece. See, the cherubs were to be all one piece. In, in most other depictions I see, they're like this one where their wings touch at the top, completely covering the uh, mercy seat. So this is just, uh, I like this picture because it zeroed in on the mercy seat. And this is where, where the, the action occurs. Now cherubs in the, in the scriptures are always associated in context related to the righteousness and the justice of God or his holiness, which is usually thought of as a combination of his righteousness and justice. Now inside the box originally, or some think that out just in front of the box, there's some differences of views there. There's the uh, table of the, of, of the uh, testimony. That's the Ten Commandments, the tablets, uh, that have been broken by uh, Israel. Aaron's rod that budded, which speaks of their rebellion against the leadership, the priesthood that God provided, and a pot of manna. Some think that the tables were the only thing inside the ark, and the others were set out in front of it, but uh, we've gone through all of that before in our study in, in uh, Hebrews. And so the picture is that the high priest would bring the, 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 the blood from the uh, sacrificed uh, goats. There were two goats taken, remember, one is killed, one is uh, taken. Uh, the sins are identified with that goat, and he's taken off in the wilderness, uh, far, far away so that he can't wander back, picturing the fact that our sins are completely removed from us. And then the blood from the one, the animal that is sacrificed is brought and placed upon the mercy seat as a picture of our sins being atoned for, being cleansed. Used to be, you often hear people say, well, the meaning of kafar is cover. That's a nice little memory device. And in some places, you have a synonym or a homophone, actually, kafar, um, in uh, uh, Genesis 6, the pitch that that Noah kafard covered the ark, uh, his ark with. But that's pitch isn't the idea that we have in other places, so that's that's considered to be a separate word now. And this word that is used here is understood to be emphasized cleansing. So Jesus Christ, therefore, is displayed publicly as a propitiation. He is the mercy seat. That gr- the Greek word here is the one that we had in the that I had in the previous slide, where we had the uh, words. Here we go. Go back to it. Uh, hilasmos and hilasterion are two forms of the Greek word for propitiation or the mercy seat. And so Jesus Christ is pictured as the mercy seat. He is the one who makes atonement. He is the one. It's at the cross 
that God solved the problem of his righteousness and his justice so that Jesus is the one who is the propitiation with God, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And that this was to demonstrate his, that is God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. See, the sins that were committed in the Old Testament are passed over by God. They're not, the, the payment has not actually been paid yet. It's paid in A.D. 33, but what about all those sins committed from the time of Adam until the cross? Well, God passed over that knowing that at the cross they would be paid for. It's not as if their salvation or anything was ever in doubt or as if it was um, uncertain that it would be paid for because God in his omniscience knows exactly what will take place. But until those sins were actually paid for, the Old Testament saints did not have access to heaven. That's why Jesus, after the, his, between the death and resurrection, goes to uh, Sheol and goes to Abraham's bosom and announces his victory uh, makes the victorious proclamation that he has paid the penalty for sin. It's the defeat of Satan. And then he takes a paradise, Abraham's bosom, to heaven. And it's only once the sin is actually paid for on the cross, then the Old Testament saints have direct access to, uh, to heaven. And Jesus Christ is viewed as the priest who makes propitiation there, uh, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that's the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And we're told the extent of this in 1 John 2.2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, meaning believers, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So that the propitiation and redemption are actually truly taken care of by for all people. So the issue isn't their sin. The issue is faith in Christ. Because only by believing in Christ are you born again and are you do you receive imputed righteousness and justification. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, the motivation is the love of God, not who we are or what we have done. So back to Romans 3.25. God said, For Jesus is a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness as a demonstration that God's righteousness has to be satisfied because in his forbearance or his patience, God had passed over sins previously committed, but there had to be judgment for sin. And that is what took place on the cross. Now, we will come back uh, next time and probably finish up uh, the rest of what Paul says in uh, Romans three twenty six down through uh, 31 as we prepare for the great chapter on justification 
in chapter 4. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think through these things this evening, to be reminded of your love for us and the way you have manifested that down through history as you prepared the human race through the symbols, through the rituals, through the uh, feasts of Israel, so that by the time Jesus came and died on the cross, it could be understood why he was dying on the cross and what needed to be accomplished on the cross so that sin could be paid for, so that we could be set free, and that salvation would be ours simply by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.